Pastor Brian Wolf here. A couple of weeks ago, I had the very gracious invitation to go up to Boulder, Colorado, to Colorado University in Old Main, the old uh, theater that they have there. It was hosted by the University Lutheran Chapel in Boulder and Pastor Joshua Hayes, and give a presentation on the book, Has American Christianity Failed? I really uh, covered the first chapter of the book and talked about the four streams of American Christianity being revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm, all themes that Table Talk Radio listeners will be familiar with, but i got to work them out in a bit of a kind of orderly way. Uh, We had a really interesting question and answer afterwards uh, also, so you can stay tuned to the end. So I asked Evan if he could pull the audio off the YouTube video and make it into a Table Scraps, and that's what you have before you. Enjoy. Let us know what you think, uh, and don't forget to keep in touch. Thank you. Well, I didn't want to just say, uh, has American Christianity failed? Uh, yes, any questions? <laughs> That's where we'll end. <laughs> uh, but we'll try to talk about it for a little bit and, uh, and see where we get. And if you guys do have questions about it, then we'll answer some. Uh, the, to, to take that question, though, has American Christianity failed? We probably have to, two uh, tasks that we need to do. Uh, the first is we need, to, we need to sort out what success or failure would look like. When we talk about a body of theology, in in other words, what are the standards by which we would measure uh, failure or success? I mean, should we should we measure success based on on numbers or or changed lives or a changed society or political influence or or wealth or something like that? And if we were to use that standard, then we might say that American Christianity might have begun to succeed or something like this. But I'd like to suggest to you that. The standard which we should judge a theology is the standard that is given in the scripture, namely faithfulness to the scripture itself, which results in forgiven sinners who are comforted by the gospel. And I'll submit to you, I'll try to make the argument tonight that uh, based on that standard, uh, American Christianity uh, has failed. Uh, but, but what do we mean when we say American Christianity? So let's tackle that. Um, I don't, I don't want to single out a particular church or a particular theology or a particular denomination or something like that. But would, would rather like to suggest that there is a particular, uh, kind of a theological, uh, smell that is just around us in all the different churches and, it, and is in, in, in every place. And it's so, uh, pervasive that we don't even notice it. There's a thing called, uh, nose blindness. I don't know if you've seen like the Febreze commercials and they talk about uh, being nose blind to a thing where if you're around a smell for a certain amount of time, you don't notice it any longer. It's so when Carrie gets into my truck, she says, what, what happened in here? And I, and I say, no, no, nothing. It's normal. But you know, you get used to the thing. I notice this, especially when um, my grandparents in Texas their home has a particular smell, and it's wonderful. And I, I don't know what it actually is. It's got to be a combination of everything. I mean, it's the it's the laundry detergent that they use. It's the spices that my grandmother cooks with. It's the soaps and everything else, all the aromas, and they all kind of mingle together. And it's the it's the mima and papa smell. And I know that when we go there, I I mean, it's one of the fun things of going to visit. I you smell it, and you and you remember. But after a couple of days, you don't you don't notice it anymore. And then what happens is you get home and you open the, the bag and you realize your clothes absorb the smell. And now you bring their smell home with you. Well, I think that if we could think about that picture with theology, 
that there's a there's a there's a there's a theological smell in the air of America. And and I'd like to um, in fact, I think one of the main things I want to do tonight is try to sensitize our theological noses to those different aromas so that when we see them, we can recognize them. And I'd like to identify four distinct uh, aromas of American Christianity that we'll just walk through. The first is, uh, I'll call it revivalism. The second is pietism. The third is mysticism. And the fourth is enthusiasm. In fact, enthusiasm is kind of an overarching smell. And we'll kind of take them in order, and I'll suggest, uh, I'll suggest how to recognize them, tell some stories about them, and then see. I want to see if you guys can start to smell them as well. I'll offer a little bit of a critique, but we'll kind of circle back around to the critique of all of them at the end. So the first is uh, revivalism. Revivalism is the theology that my Christian life begins when I make a decision for Christ. Uh, you see this, you see this all over the place. Uh, I remember I went to, uh, when I was a kid, I went to a Christian sports camp. Uh, uh, it was kind of cool because uh, I did the rock climbing and caving and all this sort of stuff, but it was a very evangelical American Christian camp. And the camp director had promised that if enough campers that were there during the week, made a decision for Christ, then he would shave his head. <laughs> and so they were counting the people who were giving their life to Christ and making a decision for Christ. That's, that's revivalism. Many of you, you know, have been to a Christian concert or a Christian service, or you've read a Christian book, and at the end of it is the time that you are to make a decision for Christ. On the back of every Gideon Bible... It says, my decision for Christ. And you can write down when you prayed that prayer to give your life to Christ, to accept Christ into your heart. And you write down the day and the name or the time and the place when it was. Uh, we used to, when I was on campus, uh, we would, uh, I was involved in Campus Crusade, and we would go around with the four spiritual laws. I'm just, are you guys familiar? Four spiritual laws, you've heard of this uh, thing? Some, some of you, not many of you. Four spiritual laws, Campus Crusade, you go around... And the four spiritual laws are this. Uh, number one, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which is convenient because we probably love ourselves and have a wonderful plan for our life also. That matches up pretty good. But the second spiritual law is that, uh, is that sin has separated us from God so that the third spiritual law is that Christ has made a way for us to get back to God. And in fact, in the, in the tract, in the pamphlet, It'll, it shows a picture. There's a, there's a canyon, a gulf, and you're here, and God's here, and sin is the gulf, and the cross comes down, and it makes a bridge across the gulf. But then the fourth spiritual law says this, it's up to us to make a decision to believe in Jesus, to accept Him, to receive Him as our Lord and Savior, and we cross over the bridge to have fellowship with God. This is revivalism. I don't know if it's, it's so pervasive that we might be surprised that 150 years ago or 180 years ago, this would have been unheard of in the church. But it was brought about by uh, a man, uh, Charles Grandison Finney, who was the architect and father of the Second Great Awakening. And he, he has some incredible things to say. He says uh, stuff like, you've heard it said that conversion is God's work and not man's work. We have to get over that ancient and archaic idea and realize that conversion is an act of the will. In fact, uh, Finney says 
that there's always been in the church a time, an, a, an event, a thing that showed that a person was choosing to give up the world and follow Christ. And he, go, and he says, in the, in the ancient world, in the, in the time of the apostles, that thing was baptism. But now, Finney says, we have something better. <laughs> the new measures. What he called the anxious bench. And at the, at the camp meetings, they would preach so that everyone would get so worked up uh, and so enthralled and so enthusiastic that they would call them down to the front and they'd come and they'd sit in the anxious bench. This was just the beginning of what we have now as the altar call. Where with every eye closed and every head bowed, you feel the Holy Spirit tugging in your heart, calling you uh, to accept Jesus, say this prayer, receiving Jesus as my Savior. And now if you've done it, raise your hand and, and come down. That's all part of revivalism. Uh, and it's everywhere. I remember someone when I became a Lutheran pastor and I was talking to a Baptist friend of mine and they had heard me preach a couple of times and they gave me sort of a compliment. They said, uh, <laughs> well, you're the most exciting Lutheran pastor that we've ever heard. <laughs> uh, which I think was a good compliment. But then they said, but, uh, but Brian, uh, when are you going to preach the gospel? Ooh. And I thought I had been preaching the gospel. I'd been preaching about Jesus, about his death and resurrection, about the forgiveness of sins, about the eternal life that he gives, about his kindness and mercy. But I hadn't been inviting people to the altar call, and that for them was the gospel. See, that was what was meant by the gospel. Now, there's a lot of problems with revivalism. A number of concerns that we might have. Uh, for example, revivalism teaches the Bible as information that must be acted upon for it to be efficient. Revivalism teaches that our will is free, but open to manipulation. I want to think about that. If I can make a decision, that means that I, I have the capacity and the ability to do that as a sinner. But it also assumes that I have to be manipulated to that point so that the services and all of the efforts of the revivalists are going to be pushing me towards that emotional experience. Right. So that the will is free, but open to coercion and manipulation. It assumes that salvation is a cooperation between God and man. This, the service is something like this. Well, God has cast his vote for you. The devil has cast a vote, his vote against you. And now it's a tie. And it's up to you to break the tie. That's revivalism. Putting, putting your choice at the very center of becoming a Christian. So that, again, uh, when uh, my wife Carrie and I were kind of moving out of American Christianity and towards the Lutheran church and we... Uh, we're realizing that it, perhaps the Lord did rescue us in baptism. Something we'll talk about a little bit later. But perhaps that's how the Lord rescued us. And we were talking to a friend of ours. And Carrie suggested this uh, to her. And she said, well, if you don't know when you made a decision, how do you know that you're a Christian? Do you see how, how important and central that decision is? Now, I, uh, I think I'll tell more about this later. But I was, uh, this morning called to the hospital to see a stranger. He just he got my number off of the, the church uh, number, and I was over there to see him, and he's dying. And 
uh, he, all of these characteristics, revivalism and, and pietism and mysticism and enthusiasm, all of that, this is his theology. He's steeped in it. And, and, and I got to see this morning uh, where this gets to at the end of life. And he was trying, he was, despair, he was just lost in despair, and he's trying to figure out how it is that he he thinks he did make a decision to receive Jesus, but now, but now looks, look where it's got him. He can't, he can't understand it. And that's the real danger of revivalism is that if it begins with me, with my, with my choice, with my decision, with my surrender, with my dedication, with my prayer, with my handing my life over to God, with my giving God my heart, if it begins with me, how can I ever be sure? How can I ever be confident? How can I ever know? So that it begins on the wrong footing. Now, that's the thing I want you to remember uh, from revivalism, that my Christian life begins with me. And then if it if it begins with me, I better be the one to keep it going. Uh, one of the main questions that we have to answer as Christians is, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do, how do I have confidence that that uh, that my. Uh, my life is in God's hands. How, how, how can I be sure of these things? And I'd like to suggest that, that that comfort and assurance is looked for in American Christianity in two places. The first is in our external life and the second is in our internal life. And that looking for the confidence of salvation in my external life is what we'll call pietism. Okay? So the second aroma of American Christianity is this, that the chief thing in my Christian life is a growth in good works. Pietism. Now, uh, we can confess our sin that pietism started with the Lutherans, but like the epidemic in the movie, what is that Will Smith movie with the zombies that I always like to watch, but then I regret watching? Uh, what is it called? I Am Legend. Oh, boy. You know, it's the, 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 uh, the disease that went over and made everyone into zombies. That's pietism, okay? It just spread like crazy. <laughs> Everyone's a pietist. The idea of pietism is that the main thing that matters is my activity of love. Pietism is probably most clearly expressed in this creed, which was stated recently by a guy like Rick Warren. But this goes all the way back to the beginning of pietism. And in this simple phrase, deeds, not creeds. Deeds, not creeds. Doctrine divides. Love unites. That's pietism. Pietism says that the Bible, for example, I want to see if any of you have heard this slogan. This is what I was taught, that the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, stands for the basic instructions before leaving earth. Have you heard that before? I cannot think of a worse thing to call the Bible. An instruction book? I mean, you know, like you get a dishwasher and with it comes this treasured instruction book. (laughs) Keep this on the library. I'm going to read it at night before bed, you know. Oh, my goodness. I was wandering in the library one time. I don't remember what I was doing there, but I was wandering, and I was walking down the library, and uh, I was looking for something, and I was and kind of, you know, mindlessly wandering, and all of a sudden, I realized that I was in the instruction book aisle. It was just, like, car repair on this side and, like, small appliance repair on this side, and I said, ah, you know, I got to... Get out of here. Can you imagine that the Bible comes to you as an instruction book? But, but this is, this is how it's presented to the, to the, to the, uh, to, that pietism gives us the Bible this way. 
I remember uh, going back and looking at my old Bible and kind of, you know, you'd make notes and mark things and stuff like this. And I realized in my old Bible, the parts that I had marked down, the parts that I had underlined and highlighted were all the parts that were telling me what to do. And I would get to those parts of promise, those parts of gift, the parts where God was serving me, and it would just be blank. I didn't know what to do with them because I was asking the question of the Bible. What is this telling me to do today? And I was looking for that answer. I was trying to determine what I ought to do. Now, it's true that the Bible tells us what to do, but it has more than that. And it's not only or merely or even an instruction book. It's something so much more. In fact, the Bible at its very heart is a promise book. Now, if if you guys if there, if you just want to have one thing to take away from tonight, it's this. That the Bible has two words. Two distinct things to say to you. It has, on the one hand, the law, which tells you what you are to do. It shows you your sin. It threatens to punish you when you break that, uh, break that law. That's the Ten Commandments, the preaching of Moses. But there is another word, a better word, and the chief word of the Scripture. And that's the Gospel. The promise of the forgiveness of sins. It's the good news, but not just any good news. It's the very, very specific good news that God became a man, your flesh and blood, to bear your sin, to suffer in your place, to rescue you from God's wrath. And he delivers that good news to you in the word itself, in the very promise. It's delivered. It's brought to you. That free forgiveness of sins. And while the law offers blessing for conditional obedience, the gospel is completely unconditional. It's completely free. It's completely by grace and mercy and God's kindness, apart from the law altogether. And the scriptures make a clear distinction between the the law and the gospel. American Christianity, at best, muddles that distinction. It says that salvation is a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of you. Or maybe a lot of Jesus and a little bit of you. It puts it together so that conversion is me cooperating with God. And my Christian life is me serving God. So that the preaching, if there's a distinction between the law and the gospel, in the preaching of American Christianity, it's like this. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is for those who are outside the church to get them in. But once they're in, once they've made a decision for Christ, once they've received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then what they need is the serious stuff, the preaching of the law. How you're supposed to live. What you're supposed to do. How you're supposed to be obedient to God. Uh, uh, Ten steps to a better prayer life. Twenty-two steps to better fasting. 14,952 ways to be a better husband. (laughs) Or whatever, you see. That's the preaching for the Christian because now my Christian life is about what? It's about growth in good works. And that is pietism. Can you recognize the smell of it now? Uh, and And it shapes the Christian life as a life of success. So on the extreme side, you start to get books like the book of the most famous pastor in the United States, Joel Osteen, which is called Your Best Life Now, or Every Day a Friday. In other words, not only is your Christian life supposed to look like growth in good works, but it's supposed to be a life of success. The man in the hospital bed today told me, he said, uh, 
How can I speak of the glory of God when this is my life? Do you see what pietism had done to the man? He was convinced that because he was a Christian, his life should be one of success. And now he's laying here suffering, wailing, dying. Surely he can't even be a Christian because his life has so much sorrow. So I had to say to him, look what Jesus says here. Uh, now the Son of Man is glorified. When? Not at his transfiguration, at his crucifixion. That's the glory of God is the man Jesus dead on the cross. Christian life is a crucifixion. Jesus promises us tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. Take up your cross, Jesus says. Not your lazy boy or whatever. Your cross. But pietism sets up the Christian life to be this growth of success. The problem is, then, that I'm looking for my confidence, for my certainty that I'm a Christian, in my own doing. In my efforts. Am I a Christian? Well, I think I did pretty good today, so maybe. Am I a Christian? Well, I blew it today. I sinned pretty bad. I, probably not. And we're looking for that certainty in all the wrong places. Now, American Christianity does not only look for certainty in our own external works, but it also has a way of looking for that certainty in our inner life, in our spiritual life, and this is going to be the third aroma or the third smell of American Christianity, which I'd like to, I'd like to call mysticism. And mysticism is the theology that I can have a direct and immediate experience of the presence of God on the inside. Now, mysticism as a theological construct is not limited to Christianity. There's Islamic mysticism, Hinduism is mysticism, Buddhism and all the Eastern religions are, are built on the foundation of mysticism. New Age spirituality is mysticism. In fact, whenever you hear someone say, uh, I'm, not, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, you've heard that before? I'm, not, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious, that means, oh, you're a mystic. <laughs> I was talking to a guy and he said that, he said, I'm not, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And he started to explain to me all of his stuff and I said, I said you know what you are? You're a mystic. And he said, all oh, right, right on. <laughs> he was just so glad there was a name for it, you know. He didn't even know. There was no, yeah. So he went away happy that he was a mystic, you know. Uh, but this is what Christian mysticism says, is that I'm, I have an experience of the presence of God, that I have an awareness of God's presence immediately, with no mediation, with no mediator, with nothing in between. Now, mysticism manifests itself mostly, mostly in worship. And especially in American Christianity, the goal of the worship service is to lead people into an experience of the direct and unmediated presence of, the, of God, the Holy Spirit. So I was talking to, uh, I interviewed uh, a praise and worship um, songwriter, uh, Chris Tomlin. He, he's, you know, when you look at the top songs, he's always up there. One, two, three. He's, you know, one of the most popular. How Great Is Our God has been like the number one contemporary Christian song for years and years and years, written by Chris Tomlin. And I was interviewing him, and I was asking him about, about this. What's the goal of the worship leader? And he said, well, Brian, the goal is that you want to lead people into the presence of God. And you want to bring them into the presence of God, and then you want to get out of the way. So I said, well, how do you know when you're in the presence of God? 
And he said to me, he paused and he thought about it for a little bit, and then he said, well, you just know. You experience it. You can feel it. You're, you're, the, the language by, used by the mystic is that you're, you're touched by God. You're moved by God. You're swept away. The language of mysticism is the language of being lost. The language of surrender. The language of, uh, 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 of being absorbed. And, and it's an internal experience. Hmm. Now, uh, I, I uh, and anyone who has been, who was a mystic can remember this. These, is that what, what you're looking for when you go to worship is you're looking to experience this intimate communion with God. You're seeking after it. You're doing things that lead you to it. And, and when you're swept up into the moment, you feel like God is on your side. Like He's got you. Like He's carrying you. Like He's right there with you. But there's a dark and despairing kind of underbelly to mysticism. And that is that sometimes you don't feel it. You're not moved. You're not swept away. You're not touched by God. This is what, how I would describe it as, well, uh, I'm really going through a dry spell. Uh, worship has been pretty cold lately. I haven't, I haven't felt God moving. And do you realize that what I was doing is I was, I was judging my nearness or my farness to God based on some sort of internal um, feeling or sensation, not on God's external promise. Uh, mysticism, then, is looking for this comfort in the experience of intimacy. And it, and it leads to the entire picture of our Christianity being understood in terms of intimacy, of a personal relationship. You've heard people say, that in the old days they would say, have you been born again? But now they say, do you have a, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? That language is nowhere in the Bible. In fact, the idea is nowhere in the Bible. But it's so pervasive because of this mysticism that wants to have this intimacy with the, the, the divine and the human on the inside of us being brought together, touching, joining, you being somehow uh, united to one another. Now, the result of this, of looking for comfort both in the mystical experience as well as growth in good works, is that, that nothing is sure. No, nothing is solid. Everything is, is moving around. I can't be confident that in fact God does love me because maybe I feel like it today and I don't feel like it tomorrow. I look at my own life and I say, well, maybe I'm successful today, but boy, tomorrow is a completely different story. I look at my worship experience and today it, I felt close to God, but, but tomorrow I might feel very far from Him. And, and I'm and I'm un, I'm I'm unanchored from anything certain. Like uh, like James describes the man who prays without faith. He's like a boat tossed on the sea. This is this is how we become in our Christian life, and and we're washed back and forth. And, and I think there's a particular pattern to that washing back and forth. In fact, it's a kind of a swinging, and uh, and or, or, or like a pendulum. And that pendulum swings between these two extremes of pride on the one hand 
and, and despair on the other. You have the, you have the Pharisees over here and you have the Judases over here. And I, I only want to speak from my own experience, uh, but th- that I was on this swing. Back, uh, back and forth between pride and despair. And I, and I can't speak for everyone in the, in the theological construct of American Christianity, but from my own experience, as I've described this life of pride and despair, it seems to me to be a pretty accurate picture of how most people in what we're identifying as American Christianity live. I've tried to live a life in obedience to God. I've set aside time to have quiet time and prayer. I've, I've tried to do good and sacrifice and love and serve my neighbor. And maybe today I made a pretty good push at it and I'm feeling pretty good. And probably God is glad to have me on His team. <laughs> He's probably looking down from heaven and He says, well, Job was alright, but look at Brian. <laughs> He's really tearing it up. He's living the victorious life. He's overcoming his sin. He's avoiding temptation. He's serving his neighbor. And also, he's growing in humility. <laughs> but then, uh, then the devil comes along. My flesh comes along. My own dying comes along. And, I, and, and, and like St. Paul says, the good that I would, I do not. And we fail. And we sin. And we hurt our neighbor. We bring shame to God. And then what is it? Despair. How, how, could, I, how, how could I say I'm a Christian when I live like this? When I think these things and when I say these things and when I do these things and when I act this way. How could I possibly be a Christian? My external life is in shambles. Growth and good works, there's no comfort there. My internal life is all twisted up. There's no comfort in my conscience at all. Where is hope for me? And, and when you get to that point of despair, then you, uh, then you say, you know what you have to do? You have to try harder. If I could pick one word, I, I have I kept. Uh, let's just call them journals and not diaries, could we? I kept <laughs> I kept journals during this time, especially when I would travel, and so I'd I'd write and I would mostly write in my journal. I'd write my prayers, and they're marked uh, distinctively marked uh, by that one word, resolve. I will do better. I will try harder. I will surrender more. I will pray more. I will serve more. I will love more. I will hand my life over more. And you see that despair turns like this into pride. Me, I'm going to do it. I'll achieve it. I'll make it happen. And I get after it. Yeah, I did it. I finally did it. Kept my promises until crash back here. Oh boy. What am I going to do now? Well, more resolve. I need to fast for more days. I need to have a longer quiet time. I need to get rid of those friends. I need to separate myself. 
I, 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 whoosh. Do you see? Now that is mysticism. Pietism and mysticism. Looking for comfort in the wrong place. It begins with me. Started with my decision. And it continues with my resolve. My own sacrifice and my efforts. Now, uh, let me just check my notes to make sure I got all the mysticism stuff here. Feelings. The idea that Christianity is being close or far. And we recognize that, can't we? If we know the distinction between law and gospel, we recognize that as pure law. No gospel at all. The idea of mysticism, oh, this is, this is really interesting. Just as maybe a little aside, the idea of mysticism opens up American Christianity to the wooing culture of consumerism. So how am I going to get people into the church? I'm going to woo them in with an experience. So the shape of worship, the mystical shape of worship, leads to a kind of consumer thing where we want to draw people in by, the, by, the, by what we're selling. So that now you can use uh, sales and strategy and all this marketing stuff to bring people into the church. That's, a, that's kind of a second cousin to mysticism. Okay. Now, all of this put together, revivalism, pietism, mysticism, comes under the big theological category of enthusiasm. We, we use enthusiasm as a common word, not as a theological word. It just means somebody's really excited about something. But theological enthusiasm means that anything spiritual happens in the theater of my own heart. If it's inside me, it's spiritual. And if it's outside of me, then it must not be spiritual. It must be a work or something according to the law. So that enthusiasm... Uh, prohibits anything from the outside of bringing me any gifts from God. The enthusiast, the enthusiast looks, for example, at something like baptism, and they say, oh, baptism, that's outside of you. That's stuff, so it can't be spiritual. It's got to be a work. If the enthusiast looks at something like the Lord's Supper and says, that's outside of you. It's something you're eating, something you're walking up there and you're taken and you're eaten, it's outside of you, so it's got to be a work. It can't be spiritual. In fact, the enthusiast sees the Word of God or hears the preaching of God and says, that's outside of you. It can't be spiritual. Uh, it, it's got to be a work. What makes, it, what makes it effective is my own, the work of the Holy Spirit in my own heart. So that enthusiast would say, remember the altar call that we were talking about at the beginning? If you feel Jesus tugging on your heart, then you can give your life to him. Well, I always want to say to the pastor who's preaching like that, say, well, what if I believe that I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus died for me, but I don't feel anything? Can I still come down? <laughs> Could I still be a Christian? No, you see, it's all there in the theater of your own heart. And this does a couple of things. I mean, number one, it destroys the sufficiency of the Scripture and says, no, the Scriptures are not enough. I need something more. The enthusiast goes to their prayers and their devotions not just to speak to the Lord and make known their petitions, but also to hear from God. You know that you've heard this, that prayer is a two-way conversation. 
that we speak to God and then God speaks back to us. And the enthusiast is often listening for God to be speaking to me inside of my own heart, to be delivering to me another revelation. So, so that I know that I'm a Christian not because the scriptures say so and because I heard the preaching of the gospel, but I know because I heard something else, the internal word. I've got a couple of really embarrassing enthusiast stories, but let me see how if you guys seem like very friendly people <laughs> that are not going to tell anybody else. <laughs> uh, but so I remember one time uh, I was uh, having my quiet time. That's what the American Christians call their devotions. And I was uh, and I prayed, but mostly I was there in silence, listening for God to speak to me. And this is really kind of embarrassing. But God told me, hey, Brian, uh, it's time for the rapture. Ooh, that's exciting. Uh, when? And God said to me, now. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, Lord, why are you telling me? And he said, so you can get a head start. <laughs> Whew. So... I went outside, this is a true story, and I heard God say, three, two, one, and I jumped <laughs> to get a head start on the rapture. <laughs> thank you for not telling. In fact, thank you, thank you for not laughing that much at that. I, I, think, it's when I, it's, I think it's when I landed... Uh, that I started to become a Lutheran. <laughs> because I had to say, well, what, what was that voice? It obviously wasn't true. It wasn't God. Was it the devil? Was it my imagination? It really, in fact, it didn't matter because that voice was not trustworthy. And then I said, well, if I can't trust that voice, if I can't trust that, what can I trust? If I can't trust my feelings of being close to God, what can I trust? If I can't trust myself and my own good works, what can I trust? If I can't find confidence in my own decision, then where can I find confidence? And the answer is the word. The word that is outside of me. That is true. Uh, that doesn't need me to believe it for it to be true. That, that word that, that stands there and tells me about God's love for me in Christ. It's true. And it's where our confidence is found. Boy, I really don't feel close to God. Well, what has God promised? I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Has He promised that to you? Yes, well then it doesn't matter if you feel close to God or not. He's close to you. I really don't feel forgiven. Well, so what? <laughs> Are you forgiven? Did Jesus say whoever sinned you forgive, they're forgiven? Did He promise whoever believes and is baptized shall have their sins washed away? Well, then it doesn't matter if you feel forgiven. You are. I don't feel like I'm worthy to be a child of God. 
So what? Has God called you His child? Has He adopted you in baptism? Has He given you His name and His word and His peace? Then it's true. It's certain. It stands outside of you. So, I went one time to the McDonald's. This is my favorite story to express this truth. This is a weird story, though. I know, sometimes weird things happen to me. This is maybe one of the weirdest. I went into the McDonald's, and I was in the narthex of the McDonald's, you know. (laughs) And... uh, I think I was I think I was gonna put a return a movie, but there was a line, so then I was gonna get some ice cream or something like this. And this lady walks up to me, and she looks up at me. And she says, uh, "What do you do?" And I said, "Oh well, I I'm a Lutheran pastor." And she said to me, "Well, I'm a Baptist. What's the difference?" Oh, good question for McDonald's. You know? <laughs> Uh, and I said, well, I'll bet you in your church, at the end of the service, you have a time for people to make a decision for Christ. Said, yeah. An altar call? Yeah. People can commit themselves to Christ? Yeah. They can recommit themselves to Christ? Yeah. They can be baptized or they can be rebaptized or re-re-re-baptized? Yeah. Yeah. Right. You go and you pray to accept Jesus into your heart? Yeah. Dedicate your life to Him? Yeah. That's right. And I said, well, the Lutherans are a little bit different. Instead of asking, uh, have you given your life to God? We ask, has God given his life for us? And instead of asking, "Have, have I given my heart to Jesus? We ask, has Jesus given his heart for us? And instead of asking, have I prayed to accept Jesus into my heart? We ask, does Jesus pray for us? Does he accept us? Instead of asking, have I surrendered my life for God? We ask, has Jesus surrendered his life for us? And the answer to these questions is, yes. Maybe I didn't say it with such vigor at McDonald's. That was a little more. You know. The answer to these questions is yes. Jesus has given it. Jesus has surrendered his life for us. He has given his heart to us. He has prayed and accepted us. And this lady with tears in her eyes says, that's the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. And I said, you should be Lutheran. <laughs> Because we hear that every week. But you see the difference? I mean, when you start to sniff out the smell of, of revivalism and, and, uh, and pietism and mysticism and enthusiasm, you, when you start to recognize the smell, you realize that they're, that they're not the sweet aroma of the gospel. It's the, it's the smell of... It's maybe the smell of the of the trash heap outside Jerusalem, it's not the sweet aroma that's burning in the temple. That sweet aroma is the promise of the gospel. The the promise that the death and resurrection of Jesus is for you. The confidence that God loves you. Each and every one of you. 
And you can just as well undo that love of God for you as you can build a time machine and, and go back in time and get a crowbar and pry Jesus off the cross and do CPR and bring him back to life and keep him in a cage so he doesn't go to the cross. You just cannot do it. You cannot undo his love. So Paul says, who, who can separate us from the love of God? <laughs> who? Who can condemn us? Christ has died. He's risen. He sits at the right end of the Father. He intercedes for us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. So that I'm confident of this. Death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor, nor things present, nor things to come, or anything else in creation can separate us, you and me, from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, uh, we had the question, has American Christianity failed? Right? And I think the answer is yes. It's failed to glorify God in Christ. It's failed to comfort sinners. But, but, Christ has not failed. He can't. His death and resurrection are not a failure. His death and resurrection are our life and our hope and our peace. While it's true that American Christianity has fallen short, Jesus has not. And that's our comfort and our peace. And I hope it's your comfort and I hope it's your peace in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, thank you. I, think, I don't know what time it is. I don't know how long we've gone, but I'll bet you we have time for questions. Is we've that got true? time for questions. Perfect. Yes, sir. Would you, uh, I think you said the word Luther maybe 15 times or so, and I just wondered with uh, Paul Bruha on homosexuality in the Luther Church, what is your spin on either the first or the six nine, either the sexually immoral or adulterers, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, will inherit the kingdom of God? Thank you. There's a weird, so when I was describing American Christianity, I was, I was kind of in the, uh, still in the Bible-believing realm of things. There's another major division that goes through the middle of American Christianity, runs across all denominations and all churches, and that's the divide which is split on what do you say about the Bible. Uh, and we can shorthand that by saying that you have the conservative churches that believe the Bible's true and the liberal churches that uh, believe from higher criticism uh, that the Bible contains errors. Uh, and that the Holy Spirit speaks through culture. So if we look at those two divides, and we realize that that kind of splits all the denominations, so we have uh, Lutherans, but you can have conservative Lutherans and, uh, and liberal Lutherans, conservative uh, Presbyterians and liberal Presbyterians, and so forth. The biggest Lutheran church body in the United States is a church body called the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and it is decidedly on the liberal side of the spectrum. Uh, they've embraced uh, higher criticism to an extreme degree. And what that does is simply opens up the idea that the Holy Spirit speaks through culture. And it seems like the favorite culture for the Holy Spirit to speak through is uh, liberal American culture, <laughs> which is kind of embarrassing. I remember one time, oh, I wonder if you guys will like this story. I remember one time I was uh, sitting with my dad and a, an Episcopalian priest and we were having lunch and a, a guy comes over and he saw us and he says, hey, what are you guys? 
And uh, we said, uh, we're Lutheran. And he says, we're uh, Episcopalian priest. And, and the priest who we're sitting with, the ex-priest, he says, oh, I used to be an Episcopalian priest. And, and he says, what happened? And he said, well, I was preaching that, that homosexuality was a sin, uh, adultery, and they kicked me out of the office. And, and this guy said, oh, uh, you wouldn't be the kind of priest, uh, how do you say, you really wouldn't like me then. In other words, he was the kind of liberal priest that had him kicked out of office, right? And, uh, and so uh, he says, but how, how can you possibly preach that, 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 that homosexuality is a sin? And, uh, and, and, I, and I think I maybe took over the conversation and said, well, you know, the Bible talks this way. And, uh, and he said, yeah, but the Holy Spirit speaks through culture. And culture tells us that we shouldn't be so strict about these sexual sins. And so I responded to him. <laughs> I said, well, now, wait a minute. I was just in Africa a couple of months ago. And over there, according to culture, marriage still belongs to a man and a woman. Not to two men or two women. He said, how come the Holy Spirit isn't speaking through the culture in Africa? And I looked at him and I said, I think you're a racist. (laughs) And that was the end of the conversation. Now, I want to say that the Bible presents itself to us as a book that is true. In fact, in fact, before the Bible presents itself to us as a theology book, it gives itself to us as a history book. So if we do not accept that the Bible is true, we might as well not have the Bible. I mean, if we want to try to massage the Bible to make it say what's more comfortable for us or easier for us, then we might as well not have it at all. That's uh, that's turning the Bible into an idol. And the ELCA and the liberal churches have done that. Uh, It's one of the sad things for me that when people hear Lutheran, they think about the liberal Lutherans rather than the Lutherans that believe the Bible. And I, I think that the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and I, I think I'll say this clearly, even though it sounds harsh, that they're not evangelical, they don't have the Bible. They're not Lutheran, they've abandoned our Lutheran doctrine. They're not even a church, they are only in America. So they're not the ELCA, they're just the A, and they don't even like America, so they, they're like the haters of the A. So I would like to make a distinction between, I'm a pastor of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which stands clearly on the authority of the scripture uh, and confesses that, uh, that sexual sin, the whole range of sexual sin is something not only to be, to be preached against, but to be fought against, too. Does that answer your question? Yes, sir. Along a similar line, um, saying that our confidence is in the word, um, the word requires interpretation by each person. And so is... Our confidence in our interpretation of the word? Is it in some a particular interpretation of the word? There's like obviously some things that the Bible's really clear about and then something that it's kind of hazy about. So like I guess what are what are your thoughts on where that confidence lies within that interpretation? Thank you. Got it. So just to repeat the question, the question was uh, the scriptures are often uh, interpreted. So where does our confidence lie in the word or in the interpretation of the word? Uh, Or whose interpretation of the word? Everybody claims to have the word, but everybody has different ideas about it. So where do you go? Uh, I I would suggest, and this would be, you know, let's do this again tomorrow night and we can flesh this out more. (laughs) 
But to, to, I mean, to address it really quickly, the, this category of conversation is what we call the clarity of the scripture. Are the scriptures clear? Uh, Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And the, and the reformers would say that if a lamp doesn't give light, it's no good. So the scriptures must illuminate and give light. So I would confess the clarity of the scriptures, which is to say that the scriptures, in fact, don't need interpretation. Now, there is sometimes a gap between the words that God gave and us. So, for example, uh, most of us don't speak Hebrew or Greek. So you've got to get it from the Hebrew or the Greek to the language that we speak. And a lot of us are not living in the same times and we don't know the histories and things like this. So there's work to get the words to us today. But that's not, the word, that's not the work of interpretation, but rather it's the work of bringing the words to us. But that the word is what we have confidence in. And, and so I would, I would say that on every point of doctrine and life, the scriptures speak with a clear voice. So that even the unbeliever, just, to, you just take a standard pagan, standard issue pagan, and put him down with the scriptures and say, what do the scriptures teach about marriage? Or what do the scriptures teach about baptism, or what do the scriptures teach about the two natures of Jesus? And you put the scriptures there, even the unbeliever could say, well, this is what they teach. I just don't believe it. So we confess the, the clarity of the scriptures, and I would say that if someone wants to bring to you an interpretation, we'd say, I, I, don't, I don't want the interpretation. I want the word itself. So the answer to your, I guess my answer to your question is I, I would question the premise that we only have the word by interpretation. Yeah, so, I mean, we need a lot of time to flesh that out. But I would say, I mean, and this is one of the points, is that very few churches confess the clarity of the Scriptures. It's one of the debates of the Reformation, uh, is that the Catholic Church says that the Scriptures must be interpreted and by the authoritative interpreter. Uh, and so the Pope had the magisterial teaching office, and you didn't have the Scriptures except for through the Pope. Uh, the, the reformers, almost of all stripes, argued against that and said, no, we, the scriptures speak with clarity. And if there's unclear texts, they can be interpreted in light of the clear text. Yes, sir. No, Brian, expanding on that question a little bit, in the, in the Old Testament, when we refer to the scriptures, you know, we, we know that God is Christ, and in Christ, in, in the Old Testament, God said, you know, he allowed for so just speaking of divorce, Jesus says, uh, Jesus goes, when he's questioned about that, you know, in Matthew 19, he has the question from the Pharisees about what Moses said about divorce. And, and Jesus said, Moses allowed it because of the hardness of your hearts and the particular circumstance. But he actually doesn't say, oh, but I've got a new rule for you. He says, but it wasn't like that in the beginning. And he, points, and he points the Pharisees and the disciples back to the word in Genesis, the two will become one flesh. And so that word, the two will become one flesh, has been uh, the, the definition both uh, theological and also according to natural law. That's been the definition of marriage from the very, very beginning. So that it actually wasn't a change. Uh, uh, in fact, it was a, Jesus goes back to the institution of the thing. Does that get at what you're asking about? Yeah, pretty well. I guess in the, in the New Testament, the way of living, you know, we, we essentially say, yeah, uh, you know, there are all these issues that come up, and does Christ allow for sin today? And yeah. we are still 
Christian because we know that Christ died on the cross for our sins. Right, right. So the, the, the gospel never excuses sin. It does forgive sin. And while that might not seem such an obvious distinction at first, it's very, very important. Because if I start to say, if I start to use the gospel and the kindness of God to excuse my sin, then I'm not listening to the voice of the Lord, I'm listening to the voice of the devil. That's how the devil works, right? Here comes some sort of temptation that's sitting there, and I'm walking towards it, and the devil says, ah, it'll be fine, don't worry, it'll be great, you know. He's, Jesus died on the cross. He, he's using the gospel to motivate my sin. Now, that's a misuse of the gospel, it's idolatry. But then after we commit a particular sin and we're on the other side of it and we're walking along, then the devil comes along and he says, how could you have possibly done that? You can't call yourself a Christian. And the devil now comes and preaches the law when the Lord wants to give us the forgiveness of sins, restoration, kindness, promise. So the devil preaches law and gospel exactly wrong to us. See? A couple more questions? Yes, sir. Yes. There is an inner life. The faith that clings to the promise of the gospel also clings to the Holy Spirit. We have a conscience, and in our... Oh, man, that's what we should have talked about tonight. That's not... Tomorrow night we've got to talk about clarity of the Scripture, so Saturday night we'll talk about the conscience. But we have a conscience which is like a courtroom in our heart, and the Lord enters into that courtroom and He speaks to us. But always our inner life is a result. It's not the cause. So the Lord gives us joy, but it's joy in His promise that comes to us from the outside. The joy gives us life, but He delivers to us the Holy Spirit even from the external word that we hear and believe. The Lord reshapes us, but He's reshaping us with the external tools. So that our Christian life is not from the inside out, but it's from the outside in. And we rejoice in that. And, and we also know... So there's a beautiful text in, um, in 1 John... Uh, it's always, this is one of these, the part of my mind that's supposed to remember where this verse is, is dead. Because I try to remember it a hundred times and I always forget. But here it is. Okay, so it's First John 3. Uh, it says, in this we, uh, we know that we are of the truth and we assure our hearts before him. So there is an assurance of our hearts, a confidence that we belong to the Lord that comes from the external word. But then John says... If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. And then he says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. <laughs> so, so you see how it goes? The Lord says, I forgive you your sins. And our heart says, my sins are forgiven. And we say, right on. Or then the Lord says, I forgive you all your sins. And then our heart says, your sins aren't forgiven. And we say, I got one greater than you. My sins are forgiven still. See? So the Lord's word is true. And if our heart believes it, we rejoice. If our heart rejects it, we have something better than our heart. And we believe the word. Yes. Yes. 
Yes, there's a double place for it. So that we are, uh, we, we are living our Christian life, not only to love our neighbor, but, but also to love and serve God. But it's, it's taken out of the context of, in the scripture, it's taken out of the context of justification. It's taken out of the context of confidence before God. It's taken out of the, it's taken out of the context of salvation. So now I'm set free, I'm set free by the gospel to love my neighbor without having to worry about if God is pleased with me or not. Yeah, so it puts it all in the proper place. The law has its proper role, right? Good works have their proper role, but they always want to extend themselves. For whatever reason, for whatever reason, uh, good works just have this kind of inborn gravity that we want to trust them for our, for our salvation. So you ask someone, well, are, are you saved? And they, are you going to go to heaven? And they say, oh, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm right in there. They say, well, why? And they say, well, because I've... I'm a good person, or I've done a lot of good works. For whatever reason, nobody, I've ever, never heard anybody say, are you going to go to heaven? And they say, oh yeah, of course I'm going to go to heaven. I, I'm a Broncos fan. <laughs> or uh, I really love oranges more than bananas, or whatever. You know, For some reason, we, like, there's no real good reason that, we, that good works would get us to heaven as opposed to anything else. Like, nobody ever says, well, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven because I've got, like, $50,000 and I think that's the infant's fee or something. I mean, we don't trust in that. But good works are, in, are always inviting us to trust in them, which is why the Scriptures has to come down so hard on them so they stay in their place. So that Paul says this radical thing, to the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, uh, he, will be saved. he will be justified. He will be declared righteous. Now, why didn't Paul just say, to the one who believes, he'll be declared righteous? And he says, to the one who does not work. He wants to exclude our works from the whole realm of justification. And when they're excluded from that, then they can actually be good. If I'm trusting in my works to get to God, then you know, you know what I've done? I've, I've turned that good work into an idol. And my doing of that is worshiping that idol. And it becomes my own condemnation. Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit by the hearing of faith or by the doing of works? So that now, do you want to seek to be made perfect through, through works? If you seek to be made perfect through works, you have fallen from grace. So he warns us of the danger of trusting in our works, and that keeps them in the proper place. Is that? I think it's time for one more. One more. Okay. So I lost you a little bit on that discussion about homosexuals in that. There is something that um, the Holy Spirit, when God talks about, you know, He wants to write the law in your heart. That um, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And He says that um, love God and love your neighbor, summary of all the law. And then when we still go back and have to find the Bible to help, okay, what's the sin, what's not the sin, I need a scripture to help me with that. I use the example of, of slavery. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says owning another human being is evil. Right? And it was, the Bible was used to justify slavery for a long time, even in this country. So we've moved past that, and no one would say that that is not a sin today. So, uh, yes, thank you. So just to take up the example of slavery, uh, probably all of us are slaves in the biblical definition of things. 
my slave owner is whoever it is that owns my mortgage of the house. <laughs> and every day I work for them. Uh, and I'm paying them back. In other words, slavery in the biblical picture is an economic arrangement. Now, the problem with slavery in the United States is it was, it was, it was, an, it was a, a racial arrangement, and that was taught to the world by Darwin. I mean, Darwin, it, the, the Bible knows nothing of race. I mean, we're all, we're all related to one another through Adam, through Noah. You know, we don't even have to go back to Adam. We're all related through Noah. And so the Bible knows nothing of that kind of thing. It's Darwin who taught us to distinguish between the different types of people according to race and put one race above the other. And, and the, the sin of racism is clearly a pagan sin. Uh, and has nothing to do with Christianity. And then to say that someone, because of their race, doesn't have as high a dignity as someone else, it's just, it's just so fantastically unbiblical. And then to say that that person doesn't have a full vote, or that that person can be owned by another person, that that person's not fully human, it's, that's not operating from a biblical worldview at all. It's operating from an from a evolutionary worldview, which was sin even before it said all those things. Okay? So that when the Bible talks about slavery, it's not talking about... It's not talking at all about any sort of racial conditions. It's rather economic, or it might have to do with prisoners of war. Uh, so when you would go, because you couldn't pay off your debts to a person, you would, you would hand yourself over to, that kind of, to them as a, as, a, as a slave, and they would be your master, and they would care for you, and you would work for them until the debts paid off. Uh, it's probably the condition that, that most of us are in. We just don't call it that. So, so it doesn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that what we saw in, you know, in the civil rights movement and what we saw in the Civil War and the racism that kind of defined colonial America, uh, that's a completely different category than the biblical talk of slavery. And right, that was a sin. I mean, that was clearly a sin. Uh, when the, but when the Bible talked about slavery, it was talking about something totally different. And we would, in fact, accept the biblical definition of slavery. It just means being in debt to someone and working to pay off that debt. So, so I would, uh, and I would say the same thing then stands true, that, that the biblical definitions of, of humanity, of, of, of marriage, of, uh, of human dignity, and all these sorts of things, that they, that they haven't changed at all. Uh, and in fact, they stand, the, they stand the test of time because this is what we're going to be talking about on Sunday night here at six o'clock. <laughs> that God has put, God has ordered the world in, in and He's established, He's he'd made, He's made institutions: the institution of marriage, institution of family, institution of the church, the institution of civil government, and those institutions stand uh, even as we fight against them. They just are part of the God's building of the world, and they can't be undone. Uh, I, I do, do want to be very clear that if you come here tomorrow at 6, you'll be alone. <laughs> Just you and me. Just you and me. <laughs> but if you have uh, further questions, uh, further objections, just want uh, coffee uh, and snacks, uh, we'll, we'll be walking over to uh, University Lutheran Chapel. 
Uh, Pastor Wolfmiller has uh, some copies of his books if uh, you want to dig in further to some of the things he's been talking about tonight. And, and if you're interested in uh, our further events, uh, I will sign up uh, just for your email address. We won't spam you, but if you want to be on our event list, you can get in touch with us this way. Pastor Wolfmiller, thank you for being here. Maybe I'll leave with this blessing. First uh, Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Thank you.